Luke chapter 2 this morning, uh, verses 13 and 14 actually. This morning we continue our uh, Advent series, uh, uh, the songs of Advent, walking through a hope and peace and joy and love, and finally at Christmas morning, celebrating the coming of Jesus, this season of expectation and preparation for the coming of our Lord, even as we await his coming again. This morning, we are on peace. Man, I'm just thinking about peace and, and, and a, a longing. I mean, there's as much as we can talk about hope and peace and love and joy, there's a word that is about Advent that isn't listed there, but it's sort of behind and underneath of it all. Longing. Why do we speak about these things? Well, because these Advent themes are what are so absent from our world, from our households, from our lives. We long for peace because there is no peace apart from Christ with us. And here's one of the things that happened to me before we read the passage. This passage being about glory and peace. We've already sung it together. A glory in the highest. As we, as we think about glory and peace, I thought for sure this morning, this morning of all mornings, I'm going to preach a sermon that is almost a, a topical sermon on peace. And it turns out that's not true at all. The more I worked on the, the, the message, the more I realized that this is actually a, a sermon on glory. But, we're, but it's Advent, and, and in Advent, on this second Sunday of Advent, we're supposed to talk about peace. Can't we just take a moment's break from talking about glory to talk about something that's really important to us, right? But what if this is what is actually true? That one of the reasons why you and I know so very little of peace, isn't peace sort of a, on a running around chaotic movement and bumping into each other in various desires and various fits of rage and in various moments of of sort of flitting about anxiety. It's, it's almost like all the particles of the world are running around in chaos and disorder. So there is no peace, including our lives. But what if the world had something that, that shone so glorious and held such great weight, such gravity, that it could take all of these particles that are, are running around in absolute disorder, including our own hearts, and orient them rightly. Bring them into orbit around the great weight of glory. It's my uh, conclusion, really, at the end of the study of this short little hymn that we read this morning, sung by the angels, that if what we need is peace, what you and I need is a sight of the weight of glory. What the world needs is glory to be manifest, to come near God with us. This is our reading this morning. Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace 
among those with whom he is pleased. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revelation. Lord, this morning we have revealed to us a a prophetic, glorious word from the angels, the messengers of our God themselves in a multitude choir that would proclaim glory. Lord, we join them. Even as we long for that second statement of peace, Lord, glory. I pray, Lord, that that, that you would lift up our sight of you, our enjoyment of the words and the phrase and the meaning and the moment and the circumstance of this great song that we would be caught up to see glory, the the great weight of glory that is of sufficient gravity to bring our chaotic, anxious, disordered lives into right orbit around you. I pray that you would work that miracle as you are still Emmanuel with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon calls our passage this morning the first Christmas carol. Uh, Now, what of all the other songs of Luke? You've seen in chapter 1 there's songs, and in the beginning of chapter 2 we looked at a song just last week. What about all the other songs that are in the Gospel of Luke? What are those if this is the first Christmas carol? And it turns out the other songs are not Christmas carols. They are Advent hymns. They are songs of preparation for what is Coming. Now we cheat a little bit, and I believe it's on Christmas. We're going to go back to the proclamation of the angels here, and it's not really a song. It's more of a proclamation, but we can sing it anyway. But really, everything that comes before our song this morning is an Advent hymn of preparation, and this is the first moment where the angels come and they sing a Christmas carol, a carol of the birth of the Savior. The songs of Mary, Simeon, and Zechariah are songs of preparation for the coming. Now, this is a genuine Christmas carol because the Christ has come. The child is born. And we're told in verse 13, look at it with me. Verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Now, as I pause there for a moment and see that there's suddenly a multitude of heavenly hosts, we're told that it's a multitude, it's it's innumerable, it's not 10, it's not 100, it's not 1,000, a multitude suddenly come. You think the angels were freaked out with what was, or the, the shepherds were freaked out with what had come before this, with this announcement by the angel who came to them. By the time they get to that verse 13, suddenly, imagine the shock of a multitude of heavenly hosts, and they're not just hanging out there, that would be enough, right? They are singing. And what happens is literally heaven comes to earth on that day. Heaven empties out its halls, the Christ has come, and the angels come with him in a multitude And they begin to announce. The angels become for us tutors. It is right 
to worship the Lord on Christmas. It is right that you and I would join with the angelic multitude. What other business would the angels have to do on that day? Of all the great deeds that could occupy all of the citizens of heaven, their host quit their heavenly residence to fill the shepherd's fields with praise. Why? Christmas. The Lord has come. And that is a a tutor for my soul, because my soul is not prepared for that. I'm getting ready for all kinds of different things. But the one thing that my soul is not prepared for is to quit all of those other things. Oh, and there's so much other business. Certainly the angels had other business to attend to on that day, but to quit all of those things and say, glory, glory in the highest. When was the last time that something this amazing has happened in all of history? Perhaps only when man was formed. From the dust of the earth, the angels looked on with such attention. Consider Job 38, verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. What's the occasion? The occasion for all the sons of God, all of the angelic hosts to shout for joy. Creation. Creation was the last time that the angelic multitude gathered for song and joy, and praise in this way. The angels sing the praise of creation and incarnation. We sing angels from the realms of glory wing their downward flight to earth. Ye who sing creation's story now proclaim Messiah's birth. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn King. It's the business of the angels to worship. It's a great endeavor for the angels to watch and to participate with the proclamation of glory and blessing of our God. Since the day of creation, the the angels have have, have watched all of the works of redemption. Consider the crucifixion and all of heaven, even the, the heavenly spheres ceased to shine as all the sky went dark and heaven stood silent. And at the resurrection, there was an angel, you remember? An angel waiting in the tomb to announce to the women what we continue to announce and worship to this day. He is risen, and to this day, we join in the angel's song, right? The angels become tutors for us from creation to redemption of how we can participate in the worship of our God in his great works on this earth. And then there is that day that every believer experiences in Christ, a day in which the Holy Spirit brings a dead heart to life. And the angels long to look into these things The day of rebirth may be silent to the eyes of men, may pass like one childlike moment to a new moment of childlike faith, mostly unseen by us. Or it might come like thunder and lightning in a life that's radically transformed. But we can be assured 
of this. There is rejoicing in heaven for every soul that's reborn when the Holy Spirit makes saving residence in the life and the heart of a child of God. The angels rejoice for that sheep who has come home. Creation, incarnation, redemption. These are cause for the praise of the host of heaven. All of this, it's not the work of the angels. All all of this is the, the work of God and the angels' response to that great work is worship. And yet all of this work of creation and incarnation and redemption, it's not a work that's for the angels either. They didn't do it, and it wasn't done for them. The angels watch as the Lord works for us. The angels are servants, and they are also witnesses of the glories of grace. What is the role of the angels in salvation? The angels' main business is to magnify God, to magnify God as his messengers and witnesses of grace. Now, there's a particularly significant implication to all this, even as we'll see in the outline that the angels are are singing in this moment of praise. The Lord is the glorious center of all praise. Look at the verse, right? Glory to God. The Lord is the glorious center of all praise. It is an idolatrous tragedy that so much of worship in our age, like the age that you and I are alive in, the moment in which you and I sing so many songs, are filled with needs and wants and entertainments with man as the chief project. It is a tragedy. The angels know better. Charles Spurgeon, he puts it this way, We must learn from this, that if salvation glorifies God, glories him in the highest degree and in the highest places by the angelic host, right, and makes the highest creatures praise him, this one reflection may be added, that doctrine which glorifies man in salvation cannot be the gospel, cannot be good news. For salvation glorifies God, period. This simple truth becomes a measuring rod for all of belief and practice. What is true? Does it glorify God? Then perhaps. Does it not put the glory of God at the center of all things? It's not true. Does the doctrine hold up the Lord alone as glorious? Is the doctrine solely Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. That doctrine, perhaps, is a true doctrine. That which is not to the glory of God alone, we can be assured, is not true. Is there some way in which we've managed to place ourselves, perhaps our household, our career, our education, at the center of our gospel rhythms, the way in which we live our lives, that we've made good news, that which is not good, news. 
Well, friends, if we call something good news that is not good news, it is a false gospel. It will not save, and there will be no peace because the glory of God is not sufficient, is, is in that false gospel, not the sufficient center of gravity. The, Lord, the glory of the Lord alone has a sufficient weight of glory to make sense of our lives. And he does make sense of our lives. He does. He does bring peace to earth. And even as he does this, he remains the glorious center. Do you see? This is the outline of the angel's exclamation of praise. There's a parallelism in the angelic song. You can kind of see it just a little bit, right? The, The glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. See how it moves through those two movements that you have the glory of God, glory to God, and peace to men. And you have it in the highest, and you have it on earth. You see, redemption has an orientation both toward heaven and toward the earth. Toward heaven, glory. The direction of glory needs to be in the highest, right? And the direction of peace is to the earth. We glorify God even as we are recipients of grace. Redemption lifts up in rescue and redemption exalts in praise. They are both a sort of lifting up, but it's different, isn't it? It doesn't glorify us. Redemption does not praise us but it does lift us up. It lifts us out of who we are of our own nature and our own practice. That is one of the reasons why it's so glorious. Here's the pattern. Creation and redemption are to the glory of God. And creation and redemption are for the good of mankind. There's a pattern there that I think we ought to, to make a, a, a way of life around. And particularly for me, it's a way of life around prayer. That when I pray, I will often consider what I have prayed and I will end my time in prayer with God for your glory and our good. And I know I haven't prayed rightly <laughs> if I can't pray that at the end of it. Because inevitably, if I can't pray that at the end of it, I've probably made a big deal of me in my prayer, and I made a big deal of my glory, and so my prayer then moves on into a prayer of confession and back again for your glory and our good. So let's consider the glory of God. What is the incarnation of the Lord? Here, the, the, this angel has come, the angel of the Lord comes, and he, and he announces to the shepherds that, that there is a, a child in a nearby town, and They can go visit him, and they should, and they should tell everyone in the town what's happened there. There's a child who has been born, and he's Christ the Lord. And they've announced glory, and they've explained incarnation. And then the angel, the multitude of angels come, and their response to the announcement of incarnation is glory. Or as Psalm 148 says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. The incarnation means glory. 
Take a moment to consider the glory of the incarnation. Think about it. God, the God of all of creation, he hangs the stars in their places and he keeps them there. And he put the sun and the moon in the sky. And he made the, the land, the dry land, and he made the oceans and he divided them. And out of the dust of the earth, he created your forefather and your foremother, Adam and Eve. Even though we've rebelled against him, he's held us together from that day. And we exist because he remains. That God took on flesh. God draws near to his, to his creation. Not as a metaphor, not as only a spiritual reality, and that would be beautiful. But in the flesh, he draws near. The Lord takes on flesh. Consider this. He takes on flesh, the, the weakness of our flesh, the flesh that will itself decay, and for him, it will die. And yet he does so without sin. That's the glory of the incarnation. Have you considered the glory of the incarnation? You see, the incarnation is not just something that God has done to bring him glory. It's not, the incarnation is not merely a deed. It is also a revelation of glory. It is a revelation of glory because it is both a word and a deed. The gospel is not only good news about what God has done, it is a revelation of who he is. He is Jesus, and Jesus is God. You see, Jesus is a revelation of the word. It is a revealing of our God, his character, his nature, his glory, and his deed. The incarnation corrects our understanding of who God is. You see, we might have thought our God is far off. He does not see our suffering nor our sin as the mockers that often appear in the Psalms that say there is no God. He doesn't see us. What we do in secret will never be seen by the Most High, or for those who are down and dejected, the Lord does not see me. He does not care. He doesn't even care that I wallow in my own sin and suffering. And he corrects this. The incarnation corrects the misunderstanding that our God is far off, and neither is he so near as to see our sin and do nothing about it. You see, the incarnation corrects our idolatrous misunderstandings of our God and becomes a revelation of his glory. Our God has drawn near. He's taken on our weakness and our flesh. He's suffered every temptation and yet without sin. And he's taken our just punishment in himself on the cross. This is what the incarnation means, glory. This doesn't just tell us what the Lord has done. It tells us what kind of God he is. What kind? And that's why there's so many songs that flow out of it because we just go, oh, he's that kind of God. He is a God who draws near to both the, with both righteousness and peace. Colossians represents both of these aspects well. I would encourage you, even in the margins of your Bible here, to write Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For in him the Christ, all the fullness of God 
was pleased to dwell. He didn't just, even that is instructive, isn't it? He didn't just do it. It wasn't just a begrudging work of redemption for which I will receive praise forever. Pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile. You see, he was doing something. He was reconciling those who are his but are far off, reconciling to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And we have the coming together of the incarnation and the crucifixion. And the reality of the gospel mingles there and we discover this is who our God is. In the incarnation, the fullness of God was not merely present. His glory worked and was revealed. When we see Jesus speak with authority and heal with compassion and walk in righteousness and sacrifice in love, we are seeing the fullness of God revealed. And our response ought to be with the angelic Host glory to God. You see, the incarnation gives glory to God, and the incarnation also reveals the glory of God. As Psalm 148 ends, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. And it's because of that, it's because his glory is great that he alone is able to make peace on earth. There's nothing coming from around here that's going to be making peace. It's going to take an invasion. It's going to take an outside force acting upon us. And this is the incarnation. This is glory. And then what it brings is peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The Lord's residence, at this moment, when this song, this carol was sung for the first time, the Lord's residence has been on earth for nine months now. Let's be clear. He has taken up residence. In the womb of Mary, the angel was very clear about this just nine months before. The angel who announced the conception of the Christ was clear, but up to this moment, only Mary has touched him. But on this day the earth will receive her king. And this is a moment for glory for us. Glory, that we get to see glory for the first time. And the people who were gathered in that manger on that day saw glory face to face in the flesh. You know, at the end of our services, we offer the benediction, a well-saying called the Aaronic Blessing, a blessing pronounced by Aaron over the people. And as he pronounces that blessing, one of the things that we say at the end of that blessing is the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now there's words in there that are worthy of a sermon on their own. We've considered doing a sermon series on just that blessing. But that little phrase, the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you. Friends, that is called the incarnation. Is not the incarnation, the lifting up of the light of the countenance of our God upon us. And that baby 
in that manger is the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He comes to see us face to face, flesh to flesh. The Lord has literally lifted up the light of his countenance. And for what purpose? Peace. That's the purpose. So when we say at the end of the service today, the Lord lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace, we're saying, incarnation, we've seen it. Do it again. Lord, come quickly. The Lord could have looked at us with many other expressions, to be clear. It's the light of His countenance, not just some random, just let us see your face, some countenance. No, it's the light of His countenance. He could have lifted up justice of his countenance upon us. He could have lifted up retribution. Better yet, he would have been right to. Or simply, he could have lifted up the great radiant holiness of his face and we would have melted. Our God is a consuming fire. But no, he lifted up the light of his countenance. It was a light, a glory, a generosity, and a delight in his face. He looked on us with favor, and he brought us peace. You see, the light of his countenance is not just what he looks like, it's also the disposition that he has toward us. In the incarnation, the Lord brings us into his favor, choosing to delight in us that we might rest in him. What is the peace that the Lord is securing in the incarnation? It's a peace between God and man. It's a peace that's secured in his actual flesh. How will the peace that the angels proclaim on that day be secured? Well, that baby's going to get bigger. And that baby's going to grow, learn to talk. And that baby is going to preach. And that baby is going to call followers to himself and they will reject him to a man. And that baby will be crucified in that same flesh. You see, the incarnation is Christ taking on the flesh that he would give in suffering to make peace. See, whatever else the incarnation means for us, one thing that we can be assured of, incarnation means peace, that we ought, that means if the incarnation means peace for us, we ought to seek our peace there. But that's not how it works for me. And something tells me that's not how it works for you. We tend to fit. We tend to rage. We spin for some release, some short bit of rest. And by some tragic twisting of reality, this is especially true in this moment, in this culture, in this holiday season. We experience the least rest because we seek the least rest, do we not? We seek everything but that which the multitude of heavenly hosts came to sing. The glory of God which brings peace on earth. I can honestly say that while I can repeat the doctrines of the incarnation and redemption and salvation, I have so much yet to do to take hold of the reality of the incarnation which is my peace. Friends, we have an angelic business to endeavor into that we would see glory, that we would seek glory, that we would find peace in the incarnation. I've discovered in our text today, peace 
is found in the coming of Christ. We're told it by the angelic messengers. And when I'm tempted to fit and rage and spin and worry, I know now, I know where to look for peace. Then the angels tell us, it's peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. It's the pleasure of God to bring grace. You see, grace is the free gift of God. It is, by definition, grace. It is favor. It is a gift. The NIV and other translations translate it this way, perhaps more clearly, on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The coming, the incarnation of Christ is favor. It's gift. It's grace. I mean, isn't it for God so loved the world that he gave his only son? What other word could we use for favor than grace? Peace is grace to us. Peace is a gift to us. Peace to those whom he has lavished grace. What we have to do is open up the gift and joy and appreciate that which is already given. Again, Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, no greater proof of kindness between the great creator and his subjects can possibly be afforded than when the creator gives his only begotten and well-beloved son to die. This is the purpose for which he came, to secure the peace. The incarnation is not simply a necessary step Toward grace, it's not just another chapter of a redemption narrative. The incarnation is favor. It is a gift of grace. The Father sent the Son. What otherwise, apart from the incarnation, would be blasphemy, you and I can say, look, what favor, God with us. That would be blasphemy apart from the incarnation. But we can say here, by grace, we have God, gift, grace. It's good news that God has made peace with us. But surely that peace is an abuse of justice, isn't it? Isn't peace at the expense of God's glory? Doesn't God sort of say, you know, I'm just gonna ignore all that rebellion for the centuries and millennia. I'm gonna ignore the rebellion and the sin that is in each of our hearts. But the little hymn by the angels said, put a nail in the coffin of that error. God has forever linked glory with peace. We can have confidence. The angelic hymn, the first Christmas carol, brings a confidence to our soul. We can rest in the reality that the Lord has come, and as Ephesians 2 says, he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The Lord did business in the incarnation. The Lord has done business in redemption to maintain the height of his glory and by that redemption secure our peace. You can hear in Ephesians a reflection upon Christ our peace. It has at least one great implication for us this morning. If in Christ we have been reconciled to God, have we not also been reconciled to each other? I mean, is it true? 
We who have been reconciled, a dividing wall of hostility has been broken down, reconciled to God. Have we not been reconciled? To, that's the whole purpose of Ephesians 2. One of the things that that means, I would offer three applications for us is first of all, that we would believe peace. I mean, actually believe it. I know you can confess it, but do you believe it? Reflect upon it. Admit that you have not believed the reality of the incarnation and go seek what is found there for belief. Second, walk in peace with God. He has secured peace with you. Fitting about, worried, anxious, busy. Walk in peace with your God. There is not going to come a day when you say, whew, worried just enough to find peace. Fitted, raged, flitted about, just enough this week, found just the right amount of time to be busy enough to find peace. Walk in peace. And finally, make peace. Peace is secured. As we walk in it with our God, we have a way to make peace with one another. The work is done. There is an entering into belief together and a walking in peace together that makes peace among the brothers and sisters in Christ. And then finally, this one last word from Charles Spurgeon. As I was reading over his message, man, I commend his message to you. It's called The First Christmas Carol. Charles Spurgeon, at the end of that message, he's done. He's made all his applications points. He's said everything he, he needs to say. And he says, ah, just one more thing. And so I'm going to take the, the opportunity to offer his one more thing. When I read that, this song, Glory to God in the Highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, when I read that and I found the angels singing it, I thought to myself, then if the angels ushered in the gospel's great head with singing, ought I not to preach with singing? He goes on. He doesn't let the congregation off the hook. He says, ought you not also to live with singing. You see, as much as we can believe, as much as we can walk, as much as we can make, there is a simple rejoicing. So simple. Just a song. Be a fool who sings Christmas carols on the streets and in your house. Sing is... How many times, how many times is the greatest application point for the people of God at the end of our walking through the scriptures together? How often is it worship? Man, I could tell you so many things to do. I could tell you so many behaviors of peace that you ought to practice. If you really believe God, you do this, right? But something tells me if you really loved God, if you really saw him for who he is such that you could pre- so you could sing back to him his glory. We'd know how to walk. We'd know what today could look like if we could only sing. Heavenly Father, teach us, even by your 
angels to be singers. Teach us how to be glory proclaimers. Put carols on our lips. Cause a merry Christmas to be what flows out of us because we've seen our God. And a life that believes peace, walks in peace, makes peace, will be the fruit of seeing glory in our midst, the light of your countenance upon us. Thank you, God. You work this. You've done this. We confess this. Make it so even by your Spirit's work today. Thank you, Lord. We pray all of these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.